The views and opinions of findings and or devices discussed in this podcast are those of the host, subject matter experts, and or guests. Facts represented constitute our understanding at the time of the podcast, whereas updated factual information may be developed. They should not be construed as pronouncing an official Department of Defense's position, policy, decision, or endorsement. Hi, welcome to Clinical Updates in Brain Injury Science Today, or CUBIST, a podcast for healthcare providers about current research on traumatic brain injury, also known as TBI. This program is produced by the TBI Center of Excellence, or TBI-COE. I'm your host, Dr. Keith Stussy. Ms. Amanda Gano has moved on to new opportunities and is no longer at TBI-COE. We certainly want to thank her for helping to create previous Cubist podcasts and for her service to the country as a naval officer. Fair winds and following seas, Amanda. I hope to be able to fill her shoes with my past experiences as a deployed physician with one tour of duty to Camp Leatherneck during Operation Enduring Freedom. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Don Marion, a neurosurgeon and TBI subject matter expert at the TBI Center of Excellence. Don and I will discuss a study entitled, Cumulative Blast Exposure During a Military Career Negatively Impacts Recovery from Traumatic Brain Injury by Dr. Jason Bailey and colleagues, and published in the Journal of Neurotrauma, September of 2023. In addition, we've invited the lead author of the paper, Dr. Jason Bailey, to comment on their findings. First of all, thanks for the opportunity for bringing me on board for this podcast. And so I'm just wondering why this study was done and the importance of it. Hi, Keith, and hi, Jason. The investigators in the study were concerned that the ability of the brain to recover from a TBI may be negatively impacted by pre-existing brain trauma, and that previous injuries to the brain may diminish the brain's resiliency to recover from subsequent trauma. Up to 20% of military personnel are exposed to repetitive head trauma from blast exposures during combat deployments as well as in training. In fact, the most common source of repetitive lifetime blast exposure is from the use of heavy weapons in combat training and not actual combat. This includes involvement in explosive breaching, use of large artillery, shoulder-mounted rocket launchers, grenades, and even combat rifles. The military safety threshold for blast exposure is four pounds per square inch. However, in military operations that involve explosive breaching, service members may be exposed to blast overpressures of 5 to 6.2 pounds per square inch, and exposures as high as 11.7 pounds per square inch have also been recorded. These service members are more likely to have a clinical diagnosis of TBI and post-concussive disorder. This study was done to determine if lifetime blast exposure would increase the duration and severity of symptoms experienced by service members with a prior TBI. Well, thanks for that, Don. And you know, I certainly agree that blast exposure is a problem. When I was downrange at Camp Leatherneck in Afghanistan, we certainly saw hundreds of individuals who had blast exposures and were dealing with the effects of post-concussive syndrome. And just so our listeners know, the majority of patients who end up having post-concussive syndrome, their symptoms will resolve within two to three weeks, and it's very rare that it goes beyond that. So I think that's important for our folks to know. Moving on, Don, can you tell us a little bit about how this study was done? 
So, Keith, there were 663 service members and veterans enrolled in the 15-year longitudinal TBI study who were literate in English and 18 or older with a history of TBI and who were recruited from Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, the Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton, the Naval Medical Center San Diego, as well as from community events targeted at service members and veterans. 20 participants were excluded from this number because of missing data, and 85 participants were excluded because of invalid scores on validity tests, leaving a total of 558 service members and veterans included in this analysis. 69% were from the Army, Navy, and Marine Corps. 441 participants sustained at least one prior uncomplicated mild traumatic brain injury, and 117 had a complicated mild TBI, moderate TBI, or severe TBI and were grouped together based on a medical record review and a structured interview that included the Ohio State University TBI identification method. The TBI severity was classified as uncomplicated mTBI if the GCS was 13 to 15, and there was post-traumatic amnesia less than 24 hours, loss of consciousness less than 30 minutes, and or alteration of consciousness present. And this is important. They all had to have normal structural imaging studies. All others were grouped in the complicated mild, moderate, or severe group. The index TBI was determined as the most recent injury. However, for complicated, mild, moderate, severe TBI groups, the index TBI was the most recent injury excluding mild TBIs. The index injury was blast-related, primary, secondary, or tertiary blast for 29.9% of participants. Half of the injuries were non-combat or non-deployed, and lifetime blast exposure was based on self-report. Now, I think that's an important point to emphasize, that it was self-report. All subjects completed the Neurobehavioral Symptom Inventory, or NSI, and the PTSD Checklist Civilian Version, or PCL-35. A subsample, or 547 of the 558, also completed the Traumatic Brain Injury Quality of Life Questionnaire, which is designed to assess the negative impact TBI has on a service member's quality of life with respect to cognition, concentration, memory, executive functioning, as well as mobility, and that included balance and coordination, and physical symptoms such as headaches and sleep disturbances. Great, Don. Thanks for that overview. So what did they find? So, Keith, the average age of the service members at enrollment was 35 years, and the majority were white men. 79% had a history of uncomplicated MTBI, so by far the majority. On average, participants were 80.6 months or nearly seven years out from their most recent injury. 26% were a year or less from their injury, and 48% were within five years. The BLAST groups differed on multiple demographic variables, including age, gender, and race. The groups also differed on several characteristics related to their TBI history to include months since index TBI, index TBI severity, as well as total number of lifetime TBIs. These factors were all entered as covariates in the primary analysis. Race was dichotomized as a covariate to adjust for sample sizes. The service members estimated that on average they had experienced 79 blasts in their lifetime, but there was substantial variability. 
Although the mean was high, the modal last exposure was zero and the median was four. To adjust for this abnormal distribution, a modified lifetime blast exposure, or MLBE, was calculated with scores limited to three standard deviations from the mean, and mean lifetime blast exposure was categorized into three groups. The first group included those who are blast naive, which was 121 subjects. The remainder of the blast exposed sample were divided into two groups based on the median mean lifetime blast exposure. So lifetime blast exposure was considered low in a group with a range from 1 to 9 and high lifetime blast exposure, and that group was 214. There was a small but statistically significant relationship between mean lifetime blast exposure and total neurobehavioral symptom inventory score, or NSI score. Examination of the NSI cluster scores revealed similar small effects on the somatic, cognitive, and affective clusters with a less pronounced relationship with the vestibular cluster. The BLAST-naive group reported significantly fewer neurobehavioral symptoms than both the low lifetime BLAST exposure and high lifetime BLAST exposure group. However, the low lifetime BLAST exposure group did not differ from the high lifetime BLAST exposure group. On the PCLC, there was a similar trend with a small to medium effect size with specific differences between the BLAST-naive condition and both BLAST groups. The two lifetime BLAST exposure groups did not differ on total PCLC scores, however. There was also a significant difference in the rates of severely elevated scores across lifetime BLAST exposure groups on the NSI and PCLC. High lifetime blast exposure was almost twice as likely to have atypical symptoms on the neurobehavioral symptom inventory compared to the blast naive group. The low lifetime blast exposure group was not at greater risk, however. For the PCLC, both the high lifetime blast exposure and the low lifetime blast exposure were likely to have atypical symptoms on the PCLC compared to the blast naive group. Keith, with regard to specific symptom clusters, the BLAST-naive group consistently had significantly fewer symptoms than both the low and high lifetime BLAST exposure groups on all seven scales, though again, the high lifetime BLAST exposure group did not differ from the low lifetime BLAST exposure group on any of these symptom clusters. Regarding lifetime blast exposure and quality of life, both the low and high lifetime blast exposure groups had significantly worse scores than the blast naive group for anger, anxiety, emotional and behavioral discontrol, resilience, fatigue, headaches, pain interference, cognitive complaints, executive function, and cognitive complaints general scales. The groups did not differ on measures of grief and loss and several other scales, including the self-evaluation scale. Finally, service members and veterans with lifetime blast exposure had significantly more neurobehavioral and post-traumatic stress symptoms than did those individuals who reported no history of lifetime blast exposure. The impact of lifetime blast exposure and TBI recovery was observed on measures of affective, vestibular, cognitive, and somatic symptoms, as well as hypervigilance avoidance and hyperarousal, or PTSD symptoms. Service members with high lifetime blast exposure were almost twice as likely to report atypical neurobehavioral symptoms after TBI compared to those without lifetime blast exposure, and more than twice as likely to have atypical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. 
Well, thank you very much for that summary, Don. And that's really some very interesting results that Dr. Bailey found. So Dr. Bailey, again, welcome to the podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to add to what Don just talked about? First, Keith, Don, thank you guys for bringing this paper onto the podcast. It's great work that you guys are doing, allowing things to be digested in such an easy format that could be consumed by a larger audience. Don, you did such a great job summarizing the key facts of this paper. And, you know, I think that when we start appreciating blast and traumatic brain injury in our service members, we have to really just appreciate there's a lot of science that still needs to be done. And I do think this paper takes that one step forward. You know, we have papers that we are more proud of than others, you know, papers that we think are more impactful. And I do think this is one of those papers that I'm proud to have my name on. And I think it's adding something important to the field by letting us understand the relative impact, right? The relative impact of blast on traumatic brain injury recovery. We have to be able to parse out as best we can how much of this is related to traumatic brain injury, how much of this is related to blast exposure, and where the ends meet so that we can find the best treatments and understand the mechanisms that are underlying everything. And, you know, I think the two major takeaways from this paper has to do with, is BLAST that impactful when we're talking about traumatic brain injury? Traumatic brain injury is generally considered a larger neurological insult than a subconcussive injury by definition. And this paper really kind of goes to that. It speaks to that directly. And we talk about how the difference between how much blast the dose response affects. And in this case, we're really demonstrating that it doesn't really matter if you have a lot of blast or a little blast right, in a career. It has the same impact on outcomes in terms of how much symptoms a person's having and experiencing their risk for different disorders, such as post-traumatic stress disorder. It seems to be relatively equitable whether you have a thousand blasts in your career or you have 10 blasts in your career. And that's really important for us to understand. It seems like all blast is kind of bad. But little caveat on that is that it's not very bad, right? It, we're not seeing these dramatic increases in terms of symptom severity. We're seeing some increases in risk, particularly the risk for atypical post-traumatic stress symptoms. So double the risk for atypical neurobehavioral symptoms is really important, really impactful. But overall, when we look at the quality of life and we look at symptom severity across the groups, the effect is relatively small. And that is important to put into context as as military medicine, obviously we don't have unlimited resources. We have to really put our efforts into the most impactful areas. And I think this helps us gauge where blast falls on that continuum so that we can have a better step forward, right? We have better insight into ways we want to move and where we want to put our energy. Well, that's great, Jason. And, and thank you for that overview. Again, I agree with you that the work you're doing is really important. And I think this study really brings out some very important issues when we're dealing with our service members and veterans who have sustained blasts during their career. So, Don, are there any other limitations to the study that you'd like to talk about? I would say that any study that relies solely on self-report for the primary study variable is inherently less valid than those with more objective measures. So that's a little bit of a concern I have. For example, there are many reasons why a service member or veteran may be more or less likely to disclose lifetime blast exposure. Older service members and veterans may simply not remember. So the interpretation of blast exposure also may vary across service members and veterans. Some may only identify large exposures from sources such as IEDs, while other service members and veterans may include small blast overpressure such as that from small weapons firing. 
Don, thank you for that. And finally, Jason, you talked about the key takeaways, which are great. Would you like to say anything else and summarize for the audience what this study showed and what primary care providers at the MTF level should be aware of? Keith, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. In terms of you know the major kind of vein of this article is trying to put in perspective the relationship to blast and traumatic brain injury. And I think we are all still struggling to try to understand the mechanism at play. And for the frontline provider, we do just have to remember that we're treating the patient in front of us. We're treating the symptoms that they have, whether that's psychological in nature, because of the combat that resulted in the blast exposure, that resulted in the traumatic brain injury and the associated psychological trauma, or whether it's related to an objective neurological insult, such as a bleed or some other injury. We still just have to manage the patient to the best of our abilities. And we have to be able to educate our patients. You know, there's a lot of misinformation about there about blast and about traumatic brain injury and long-term consequences. And so we have to do our best to understand and put things in perspective for that patient. So I do think that this paper puts in perspective that consideration, showing us that the combination of blast and traumatic brain injury does result in poorer outcomes. And we need to be cognizant of that. We need to be cognizant of blast exposures and training. We need to be cognizant of how much risk we're putting our participants in, and particularly about those individuals who are at the greatest risk, you know, our special operation forces, our EOD technicians. These individuals are getting a lot of blast exposure and are at higher risk for traumatic brain injury. So we need to make sure that we have all the resources that we can to help them. Jason, that calls to mind thinking that maybe we need to put even more resources into head protective devices or protective gear from BLAST. Yeah, absolutely, Don. I think that's where we need to go. We need to look at prevention. We need to look at treatment. And to do that, we need to have good science that shows us what's happening. Yeah, well, thank you, Jason. And I can tell you as a frontline provider, having been in the Navy and seeing these folks, especially during my deployment, it is very difficult. And I think to your point, the uh, emphasis that you made that we treat the patient first, right? And we struggle with these mechanisms, like you said, is it psychological? Is it due to the blast? Whatever. But treating the person in front of us and getting the right resources to get better is really the key takeaway. So I appreciate that. So Jason, thank you for being here. That's all we have time for today. You can stay up to date on future episodes by subscribing to Cubist on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts where you can also find links to the articles we discuss and other relevant resources. Cubist is produced and edited by Vinnie White and was hosted today by me, Keith Stussy. It is a product of the Traumatic Brain Injury Center of Excellence, a branch of the Research Portfolio Management Division under the Research and Engineering Directorate of the Defense Health Agency, led by Branch Chief Captain Scott Coda, Medical Corps, United States Navy. Thank you for listening to this episode.